This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the CBS World News broadcast of the morning of December 22nd, 1942. It includes updates on the war from London, Algiers, Washington, and New York. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts. We're going to find links to past episodes, as well as books and movies featured in our podcasts. So thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. World News brings you the early morning highlights at 8 a.m. Eastern War to the industrial city of Duisburg during the night. In Libya, long-range Allied fighters are strafing the retreating Axis columns. And in Burma, both British and American bombers have successfully attacked Japanese positions. Now, here is Jay Sims. Before going to London, here's the latest news from General MacArthur's headquarters. The Allies have opened a full-scale attack against the Buna government station one mile below American-held Buna village. For the first time in the New Guinea fighting, it is announced that tanks are in action. They are 13-ton General Stewart's, manned by Australians. In facing the Allied advance to within 3,000 yards of the government station, the tanks have accomplished in a few days what Allied infantrymen were unable to do in one month. Supporting the tanks are heavy artillery fire and aerial attacks on the dwindling Jap forces. General MacArthur's latest communique reports that the Japanese commander in New Guinea, General Horii, has been killed in action. Our forces have captured an order of the day apparently issued by General Horii three months ago. At that time, the now-dead Jap commander stressed on his troops the vital importance of capturing the Allied base of Port Moresby on New Guinea's southeast coast. Now for the news from across the Atlantic, we take you to CBS London, Paul Manning reporting. United States and British bombers carried out around-the-clock battering of German airfields and industrial centers during the past 24 hours. About noon yesterday, you could hear the roar of great four-engine fortresses and liberators, escorted by 300 British fighter planes, when they passed low over London, heading for the target of Romain-sur-Seine. This was an important target. A great German airplane repair depot lies to the side of the small French city. Aircraft are sent from the front-line German air bases along the French coast to this pooling center for overhaul. But Romain sur seine is a flight of 80 miles beyond Paris, and that's the longest inland penetration U.S. bombers have made since they've been fighting on this front. Although ground destruction was extensive, six of these bombers failed to return. Planes which lagged behind and failed to keep formation were picked off by German 190s. After dusk last night, the Royal Air Force continued this air offensive by attacking blast furnaces at Duisburg for the 56th time with a strong force of big bombers. The weather was exceptionally good over the target, and this inland port, the largest in Europe, which lies at the junction of the Rhine and the Ruhr, suffered considerable damage. The Air Ministry reports 11 bombers missing. German air activity over England last night was very light. There was a brief raid on a northeast coast town, and single planes dropped large caliber bombs in several working class districts. Berlin announced late last night that a series of Axis conferences have been in progress at Hitler's headquarters since last Friday. 
Count Ciano represented Mussolini, and Pierre Laval, the French New Order. Kaito, chief of the German Supreme Command, Cavallero, a member of the Italian General Staff, Gehring and Ribbentrop were all members of this discussion group. Axis military and economic strategy for the new year was probably debated. Laval had a lengthy meeting alone with Hitler, but was not admitted later to the more vital conferences of the Inner Council. Madrid reported late last night that Laval, probably in an attempt to get France admitted as a full partner to the Axis, pointed out to Hitler that his government has delivered 800,000 tons of shipping to Germany and Italy. Also, that the delivery of French skilled labor to Germany is being speeded up. And now to CBS and Algiers for the report of Charles Collingwood. on the northern sector of the Tunisian front, that is the Tunis and Deserta end. There's been a good deal more activity down in the south. Down here, the French have occupied Pichon, a town about 50 miles from Tunis. According to the latest French communique, the Germans counterattacked, presumably at Pichon, and lost heavily. The Germans seem to attach considerable importance to Pichon because the communique, the French communique, that is, speaks of several other engagements in that area during the day. Between Pichon and the German supply port of Tunis is the town of Kairouan, an important town which is found to be a major objective in any offensive on the southern part of the Tunisian front. Kairouan, by the way, is a holy city. A railroad runs from it to Susa on the coast, and so does a very good motor road. Chiron also boasts a good airfield, as does an airfield say. The French at Pichon are only 25 miles away, but the Germans are known to hold Chiron in some strength. The French army is becoming more and more important. It's fighting in both the northern and the southern section, although its main strength is in the south. Uh, it is fighting very hard and fighting very well. We're beginning to get supplies and modern equipment to it. Its own organization is functioning well, and mobilization is proceeding rapidly. In the forthcoming offensive, General Zero's French army will play an important part. Yesterday in Algiers, the military authorities inaugurated what will be a pleasant custom. They had a big inter-allied parade through the streets of Algiers. They're going to do it every Sunday. Yesterday was the first time, and it was quite a gala occasion. The French never parade, and they really enter into the spirit of the thing. Yesterday, French, American, and British troops marched through streets lined with happy, gesticulating people. Whenever the people saw a flag or something they liked, they cheered and clapped. The side streets along the route were filled with people rushing ahead to get another look at the soldiers as they marched by. It must have been fun to march in a parade like that. It certainly had an infectiously enthusiastic audience. And I couldn't help thinking, as I milled around in the crowd, how different this all was from a routine military occupation. There were no closed shutters or turned back when our troops marched by. This is Charles Collingwood returning you to CBS in New York. And that was the news from North Africa. Now for news of the overhauling of plans to ration fuel oil and gasoline, we take you to CBS Washington, John Purcell reporting. 
Interest here in Washington is centered on administration plans for overhauling our gasoline and fuel oil distribution system. Cold weather has swept in upon the eastern seaboard, giving homeowners something to think about in the way of heating problems. And the administration is anxious to revamp its present program for allotting gasoline and fuel oil so as to make the most of limited supplies. Today, Economic Director Burns will confer with responsible government officials on these problems in his office at the White House. He will consult with Price Administrator Henderson, Petroleum Administrator Ickes, and Transportation Director Eastman. These men were asked by Burns to submit reports telling him what's wrong with the present setup and in what respects it can be remedied. The biggest headache facing the conference is the fuel oil situation. In this section surrounding Washington, there have been numerous complaints of mishandling. Local oil dealers and OPA officials are blaming each other for the fact that some consumers are without heating fuel. Many homeowners are supplementing their oil supplies by leaving the kitchen ranges open and the pumping capacity of gas companies has been strained to the limit. The White House conference is interpreted by some observers as the opening of a drive to whip the rationing program into better shape before the new Congress meets. Congressional criticism of the retiring administrator, Leon Henderson, has been especially heavy. But there are many who don't agree with Congress that Henderson has done a poor job. His was essentially a most difficult task. Henderson realized he was putting his head in a noose when he accepted the job. This morning, the Washington Post is carrying a full-page advertisement of the International Latex Corporation, which constitutes a defense of Henderson's administration. It points out that from May to October 1941, the cost of living went up 6.2%. But from May 1942, when Henderson issued his price regulations, to October of this year, it rose only 2.6%. It's further pointed out that the items Henderson could control increased only 0.5% this summer and spring, while items Congress wouldn't let him control jumped 6.2%. And administration spokesman Senator Barkley has asked the new Congress to bury factional and party disputes for close cooperation in the prosecution of the war. He said that members of the 78th Congress which will have a greater Republican representation, can help in this, as well as in the formation of a just peace by being Americans before they are Republicans or Democrats. This is John Purcell in Washington, returning you to CBS in New York. And here's the news from Russia by means of wire reports received in Columbia's newsrooms. Spearheads of the big new Russian offensive on the central Don were believed driving into the outskirts of Milorovo, important junction of the Varnage Rostov Railway. The Soviet Army brushed aside counterattacks and rolled the Germans back southwestward with fearful losses. The High Command announced in its noon communique the killing of 1,730 more Germans on the central Don front, making a total of more than 43,230 killed or captured since the offensive started December 16th. More towns and villages besides well above 300 that had previously been announced were taken by the Russians today, the communique asserted. Among more than 100 localities captured yesterday were on the Halita River, a tributary of the Don, 20 miles uh, more or less from Milorovo. Considering the rate at which the Russians were advancing, it was believed that the Red Army probably would be able to announce the capture of Milorovo as a birthday present for Premier Joseph Stalin. He was 63 today. The Russians in their new offensive already had seized control of 45 miles of the vital Varnage-Rostov Railway. 
22 German divisions were trapped between the Don and Volga at Stalingrad. And if Colonel General Vakutin in his central Don offensive occupies the entire stretch of the railway between uh, Kantemirovka and Armensk-Shadinsky, all Axis forces inside the northern half of the Don Valley will be cut off. Foreseeing this, the Germans were counterattacking with desperation in the Stalingrad area, trying to establish contact with their trapped 22 divisions. The noon communique reported six counterattacks, all repulsed northwest of Stalingrad. The Germans lost 400 men and 27 planes, which the Russians destroyed aground or in combat. Southwest of Stalingrad, Soviet artillery wiped out 1,000 Germans and helped infantry beat off a counterattack in which 300 more Germans were killed and eight tanks, two guns, and 20 trucks were demolished. German counterattacks in the central Don area apparently were intended only to delay the Russians. Frontline dispatches reported the main Axis forces had abandoned most of their heavy equipment and were retreating with all haste in an effort to reach new lines. Colonel General Vatutin's column from Bukovska, the main assault force, had now fanned out into three prongs, dispatches said. A British Middle East Command communique received from Cairo about one hour ago reports advanced British units are engaging the Axis rear guard, 140 miles west of Elagela. The communique adds that the clearing of thick Axis minefields is proceeding continually. Air activity over the battle area is reported at a reduced scale. But British planes are attacking the retreating enemy columns 200 miles west of Elagela. And that's the story from Cairo. The invasion of General Wavell's British Imperial troops into western Burma is receiving strong support from both the RAF in India and the American Air Force in China. Targets of the Allied flyers are Japanese airdromes and port facilities in Burma. A British communique this morning from New Delhi reports that RAF Blenheim bombers successfully attacked the Jap airdrome and other installations at Magway on the Irrawaddy River, 60 miles east of the enemy supply port of Akyab. Hits were observed on the runway. Japanese anti-aircraft fire and fighter plane opposition was strong, but only one raider was lost, and one enemy interceptor was shot down. From Chongqing also this morning, the American Air Force in China reports that United States planes attacked the enemy airdrome at Lashio on the old Burma Road. Fires were visible for 60 miles. A Tokyo broadcast reports that six Allied bombers have raided the Japanese-held port of Rangoon in Lower Burma. The Japs report severe damage and hundreds of casualties, but there has been no confirmation from an Allied source. On land, British troops are reported to have advanced without opposition halfway from the Indian border to Akyab on the Bay of Bengal. To the north, Japanese forces have replied to the thrust by advancing from Burma into Yunnan province in southern China. And that's the latest news. Once again, CBS has called in its correspondence at home and abroad. This morning.